Well, hello, and welcome back to Fill Your Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me, as always, is... Catherine. And we have returned to the jungles of the vaguely racist Caribbean um, <laughs> to discuss <laughs> The Phantom. Uh, the, the 1996 Billy Zane-starring vehicle, Treat Williams-supporting uh, first wave of major superhero films, right? Uh, that, that in retrospect, in, in, in calling back to its earlier days of the, the film serials, uh, has some issues. Uh, vague and nondescript racism aside that's just yeah. one of the issues uh which i'm sure we'll discuss in our hard-hitting expose of simon windsor's the phantom um i don't really know where to begin this i guess we might talk a little bit about the long history of superheroes right we're in a bit of a superhero age on the, the maybe the backside of a superhero renaissance of sorts and in the midst of all of that i think it's easy to forget just how sort of just what a mishmash the superhero quote-unquote genre was in its inception. Um, it's amazing we've come this far. Yeah, I mean, like, so, I mean, like, a lot of people, I mean, obviously we've had heroic, you know, godlike figures of incredible power in literature forever, right? Like, Gilgamesh onward, right? Beowulf. Um, so that's not new, but the, the idea of like the masked vigilante hero, a lot of people point to the Scarlet Pimpernel, the 1903 novel, uh, about a, a masked, you know, masquerading member of the, the nobility, you know, trying to help the commoners or at the very least cause problems for other nobility, you know, you can kind of take that as you will. And then that morphs very quickly into characters like Zorro and, and you know, the, the idea of like the masked hero fighting for the common people, you know, emerges in really what amounts to the early 19, uh, you know, the early 1900s. They're a and, product and of a class point. war. I mean, exactly. I mean, like the rise of the superheroes comes from the, the great depression, right? Like the, the, the destruction of wall street, the, you know, the, wasteland that was the American economic system uh, in the, the 20s and 30s. Uh, that's, that's what gives rise to these things. Uh, you know, most of them were, were the product of immigrant, uh, you know, first generation American kids, uh, you know, very famously, you know, Siegel and Schuster who created Superman, you know, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, like all of these guys were, were, you know, for the most part, immigrant New Yorker kids who were trying to sort of make sense of a world that didn't make sense and, and created, you know, all of these characters, you know, but, but we've got these, so, you know, those guys went on and they created all of our big Marvel and DC superheroes. The, the first real major wave of superheroes that really kicked in 38, 1938, 1939, you know, right as, as world war II was getting ready to, to settle in. And, uh, but prior to that, we had this wave of comic strip heroes and more importantly, radio heroes, right? Like a lot of these heroes, you know, the shadow, um, Superman, even like Superman became a radio hero that the radio show was where the entire concept of kryptonite came from. And I, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but supposedly the idea 
for why they needed kryptonite was that Superman had, there had to be an excuse for Superman to not be in some of the episodes, right? Like it was yeah. like, he just needed a break basically. And, and so they needed a way like, Oh, Superman has been struck with kryptonite and he's immobile. And now Jimmy Olsen, you know, has to take, you know, like that kind of thing. Superman's um, got the itis or something like that. It's like, Superman he's just doing something. He's busy. He's busy. He should have drank his oval tea. <laughs> uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so the, the phantom, you know, so I guess really let's, let's talk about the nineties and Batman, Batman changed everything, right? Batman came out huge smash. Follow-up was a huge smash establishes that superheroes can can be popular right we've got a bunch of different swings at it at this point one's the rocketeer which a lot of people confuse for an older character they think that that's a character from you know the golden age of comics when in reality that was just dave stevens emulating the golden age of comics in the 1980s and coming up with something more badass that was better. Yeah. Like yeah. he made it better. Like, like that uh, should have been real. <laughs> the Rocketeer is one of my favorite characters. I have all of his major appearances in comic books. They're some of my favorite things in the world. I, I love him as a character for lots of reasons, but you know, but that was, you know, still treading on this idea of looking back. I mean, cause Batman is a character from the thirties, right? Like detective comics, 27, his first appearance, you know, like, these characters have existed uh, even at the point that they found huge mainstream success in film. They've been around for 50, 60 years. Right. And the Phantom was one of those. So it, it makes a certain sense to me that, you know, some film studio executives are going through like, what do we own? What do we got? Right. Like where, where in the deep history and the bowels of this company, when somebody at some point said, yeah, buy that thing, I don't care, whatever. Who, who do we have that, you know, in the nineties, we get this, like, you know, the shadow, which you know, we'll probably talk about at this at some point because of the, the feisty, the feisty knife at the very least. <laughs> I do love his constant battles with the, the, the feisty knife. He's <laughs> constantly biting at his hand. <laughs> I'm an angry knife. And Alec Baldwin with his incredibly hairy chest, just being like, Oh, this knife. What was uh, going anyway, on so- with movies? That was such a the, weird movie, too. Such a oh, Shadow's weird as hell, Just, man. This movie's pretty weird, but Shadow is like totally other level. Because again, huge convoluted history for that character, and they basically tried to eject about half of it that was just too strange. Because um, the Shadow's even weirder. Because the Shadow was again, it was a radio show, and they invented this character of the Shadow to basically be the narrator, right? Like he was just the guy that was linking all of these mystery yeah. and detective stories together. And then people were like, they would go to the newsstands because it was, it was a radio show based on a detective magazine that you could buy. And they would just do radio dramatizations of the stories that appeared in the magazine. And, the, and again, the shadow was just kind of like the shadow knows what exists in the hearts of men, you know, like that kind of thing. And so people could started coming to the newsstand saying like, where's, where are the shadow stories thinking that that, character was in these books and it wasn't and so then like the publisher was like uh i guess we ought to put this character in these books now i know a gold line when i see it they just handed it off to like one guy and then that one guy wrote like 300 phantom stories in like 10 years so um 
you know, it's it's one of those things. But so the the Phantom, most specifically, what makes him a little different than some of these other characters is that he was purely a comic strip character. Um, you know, obviously Superman, Batman, they were comic book characters, which arose out of these various sort of topical magazines that were very popular in the 1930s, right? Um, more Fun Comics was the first one that Siegel and Schuster worked on, right? So you had More Fun Comics and Adventure Comics and uh, Action Comics, which, of course, you know, begat Superman. Detective Comics, which begat Batman. You know, you have all of these these different, you know, anthology books that were releasing, you know, on usually like a bi-monthly basis. These were not like weekly or monthly releases until much later in their histories. And, and so like, but the Phantom existed as a newspaper strip. Uh, created by Lee Falk. Um, and, and would, and he was that like, <clears throat> cause like if you ever read the Sunday funnies, and again, this is probably something that culturally we've just moved past at this point. Like we just who does this, but you know, you'd buy, you'd get your local magazine and in the back or your local newspaper. And in the back of it would be like this four page, generally like two pages, black and white, two pages, color, um, you know, um, uh, funny papers, right? Like that's literally what it was. It's for Garfield and Peanuts and all those characters. I looked were. forward to those. Oh, they were awesome. We I mean, we used to spend a lot of time at our grandparents' house when we were kids and our grandparents always subscribe, you know, subscribed to the newspaper. So we'd go over on Sunday afternoons and they'd have the Sunday funnies and read through them and and the Phantom was always there, right? The Phantom was one of like you would have like the three like more I'll say grown up you know, funnies and usually it was like Prince Valiant right? And the Phantom. And then for a long time, it was actually Spider-Man. So there was a, there was a, a comic strip version of Spider-Man that from what I understand, that was the longest, like Stan Lee actually wrote those himself for like 40 something years. Like that was the last writing that he was still doing on Spider-Man as a character. He still wrote the like Sunday funny strip of Spider-Man. So, um, so you would, you know, have a mixture of those, but Phantom was almost always there. Now, eventually those got, those strips got looped together into a comic book format from King comics that you could buy, but that was much, much later. That was like the sixties before that started happening. So he's this ancient character. He, I mean, he does have some significance in the development of superheroes by a lot of accounts. He was the first one to wear the sort of like, muscle man tights <laughs> as the character, which I know seems silly, but you know, like most of the superhero characters, you know, prior to the Phantom, they just wore kind of regular clothes and a mask. You know, Zoro just wore black pants. You know, it wasn't like a big <laughs> deal. Um, you know, but Phantom actually had like a it was almost like the wrestling costume. You know, he has the underwear on the outside as this film aggressively displayed yeah. <laughs> with its, uh, with its uh, incredible cod piece. Um, and, and, uh, and he was also the first superhero character, if I remember correctly to when he put his mask on, it blocked out his pupils. Right. So it was just white, mm. um, which of course was carried on with characters like Batman. Right. Um, so some significance there, but definitely we're talking about a sort of lower tier superhero that apart from these comic strip experience, these comic strip, uh, you know, the, the, the publication of those and some participation in a radio show had never really taken off in the same way as some of the major, you know, like Batman, Superman's of the world kind of stuff. 
But, you know, so I could, I could see them saying like, oh, we've got this character from the same basic time period as Batman. Maybe we could do something with that. And no, I guess is the answer. To that. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, not really. Uh, but I, I think it's interesting how this film was approached and what they're trying to do. So I guess we can lay out the basic storyline here and where some of the casual, you know, sort of 1930s racism hits, which is immediate. Um, But the story is the phantom is, or the ghost who walks uh, is a, a hero of a particular, I guess an Island chain almost. Um, It's a, it's a fictional African country. They reference it a few times. like, Bangala, I think is what they try to say. Uh, but it's, it, again, it's a white guy in the thirties being like, what's a jungle place. It's unfortunately, it's the same attitude that sort of created characters in the, in the sixties, like black Panther, right? Like, Oh, Wakanda, you know, it's a fictional African nation. Now, you know, fortunately Marvel was smart enough to hand that character off to people who did very smart things with it and sort of like broke away from some of that, you know, sort of just like mystical jungle stuff that was, was far too common at the time. You know, it's, and it basically made it a much more valid, interesting and, and appropriate character. Um, Phantom doesn't really have that. This is, this is the white savior narrative. I mean, like that's really what this is. Um, and and it's a little gross in in modern contexts, but I think it's one of those things you have to understand that it's it was the original character was a product of a very specific time and storytelling, and this which film sucked. in which sucked frankly, and 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 that this film in referencing back to it as hard as it is because it really is trying to emulate one of those nineteen thirties movie serials like. And if we're being honest, in 1996, you could you could get away with doing a you lot could get away more racism it. in your movies. Absolutely, like the the amount of of just sort of racist behavior and thinking in 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 the 1990s compared to how we sort of process that today is sort of shocking. To where I I've mean, gone back and showed my kids movies that I thought remembered being like, oh, this was okay, and then I I watch it and I'm like, oh, oh my no. god, like, like <laughs> oh Jim Carrey's god. The Mask. The mask oh my, is really uh, problematic at this point. Uh, um, and, and it's, it's fine. Like I'm, I'm not a person that says like, we need, we need to like ban these things. No, like they are a product of this time period, but you need to know what it is before you go into it. Like, that's my only, like, I'm totally fine. You know, if I have to admit, I, I'm totally fine with like, because Disney plus now like puts little warnings in front of a movie. Like this was produced at a time when these attitudes and ideas were not as, you know, we're seen differently than they are today. Like they have some little pat thing they put in front of stuff. And I'm kind of okay with that at this point. It's not like we're trying to censor it. You know, we're not trying to take the N word out of Mark Twain's work or anything like I that. I mean, but some like, people are, but some people are, I'm not, but it's, I'm totally fine with like, let's have a conversation about why this is here before we, you know, jump in. Um, so the phantom is, is a, a, it's a, a father son lineage. It's, it's the Dread Pirate Roberts. That's what it is, right? <laughs> and I, I kind of think William Goldman could have been pulling a bit from the Phantom to make the Dread Pirate Roberts idea because it's basically the Phantom exists as this like mythological figure, 
and then the the mantle of the phantom gets passed in this version from father to son um so when the father you know reaches a certain age or dies you know under mysterious circumstances then the son steps up and becomes the new phantom to continue it on and i think this version that they talk about in the movie he's like the seventh phantom i think is what they say um or something like that or maybe the fifth but the, the story itself is that the Phantom is supposed to serve as the kind of protector of Bangala, right? He's supposed to be the one protecting both its people and its, its traditions. There's a little bit of a reference in this to British imperialism, which they're, I, do, I do kind of enjoy in this because they're painted as doofuses. Like, they're just idiots. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. Um, I mean, a little bit anyway, Uh one of them is kind of allied with the phantom in secret and is allowing him to continue to do his work or trying to help him how he can. Uh, but the, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's the kind of story that if you were reading some adventure magazine strip in the thirties, you would be like, Oh, neat. Uh, but now it's, it's, it's a little rough. So uh, this film in specific follows uh, Billy Zane's character, Kit Walker, uh, good good superhero name not bad um and and his you know little island paradise his his, his african paradise is invaded by uh members of the sang brotherhood a pirate group that is spread throughout the world and is now trying to find something some skulls or something some some ancient thingies that do a thing it's very silly there's a lot of Indiana Jones in this, which I think is intentional as well. I don't, I don't know if you would agree with that. I feel like James Remar is doing like a bad Indiana Jones impersonation for most of this. What a shock. Um, uh, I know, right? <laughs> you know, he was in consideration. <laughs> um, this definitely, yeah. I mean, this does give Indiana Jones vibes, uh, but in like a kind of a cheap way. This film feels incredible. Really cheap, really cheap. Very cheap. And not in like that, ah, you know, this is this this is cheap, you know, like oh, they're really shooting for the fences with this thing. Just like no, just like somebody wanted a superhero film, but they didn't, didn't want to pay any a lot money on it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, the reported budget for this was 45 million, which in the mid 90s is that would have been like a mid-budgeted, you know, not high-budgeted, but mid at best. So, I mean, it's not like they didn't spend anything, but you don't see that $45 million on screen. At least I don't feel like you do. Like uh, This movie doesn't feel like a $45 million movie from the mid-90s. No. Um, you know, maybe, but I, I, I don't think so. It's... It's just, it's just kind of flat in a lot of ways. Like, it's shot kind of flat. It's not very exciting... It um, looks it looks like a television pilot from the Xeno Warrior Princess type stock yeah, of shows. Absolutely. <laughs> and and I mean it it is important to note that this this was shot in Australia, which is where all those shows were made. Like this was one of like we've talked before with movies like Dark City and stuff that you know the the Australian film industry really came into existence in the mid 90s. And then exploded with the Matrix, right? The Matrix was the first like super big project to come out of that Australian system. 
But I think some of that look, right, just because, I mean, like, basically those early Australian film days were pulling on already established Australian filmmakers, who the director of this, Simon Winsor, was one of those. Um, he had, you know, done some Hollywood work, but he, 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 the, he made Daryl. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He made Daryl. And then, you know, he also made Quigley Down Under, which of course was also an Australian film set in Australia. Um, so like it has that feel like in the, the Australian film industry in the nineties, that's the kind of stuff it was churning out. And it feels like that stuff. Um, you know, Hercules, the legendary journeys and yeah. so on and so forth. Like it, it has that, that feel. Um, so I was even thinking like, if this were on TV, I probably would have watched it. <laughs> it would have been fine. Yeah. And maybe they were intending to spool it off into that. Uh, I will say I did watch as a teenager, there was the, the Phantom 2040, right? They tried to do like Phantom I remember Next that. Generation. And that show was okay. It was, it was a bit silly as well, but um, I mean, they made video games of that. Like they, they gave the Phantom a pretty solid swing throughout the nineties to try and get that character going. And it just kind of didn't, um, you know, not for lack of trying, I guess, but, but yeah, this is an Australian production. They obviously made it there so that they could stretch their dollar a bit further. And, and it, you know, whether there were breakdowns in, in technology or just breakdowns in approach, you know, again, Simon Winsor as much as he made films that, you know, were successes, uh, you know, very, I think his biggest feature film was, was free Willy. Um, you know, take that for a what classic. you will. It was, it was a big hit. It's a children's classic at this point. Uh, also problematic in a couple of ways, but sure, you know, whatever. Uh, but this film doesn't feel like, see what you will about Burton's Batman. Okay. And there's lots that you can't say. There's lots (laughs) that you can't say. Burton's Batman, because of, and I I think honestly in this case, Burton's lack of experience and lack of understanding of the character of Batman worked in that film's favor because he looked at it at the very least with fresh eyes. He's like, I'm going to do the thing that makes sense to me, not the thing that makes sense to a comic book character of this era. Yeah. And and that ended up being exactly what Batman needed to connect with new audiences, right? To for people that you know both loved Batman because there was still enough Batman in Batman for Batman fans to go, this is cool, right? But there were also a fresh crop of people that maybe only knew like the Adam West Batman, or maybe only knew just sort of like the cultural like who needed a little bit of like camp, yeah, push it through to like get them in there and. And but this movie is leaning so hard on that 1930s and 40s movie serial approach. It's kind that of putting. It's off putting. Like it doesn't make sense. Like uh, one thing we'll I want to talk about as we get into it and sort of break do scene breakdowns is that the Phantom in this has a a sort of like larger than life physicality in this movie, like the way he moves. Like, um, there's a scene that I, I was watching a video of somebody breaking this down. There's a scene later where he gets like trapped in a mechanical room and he's just walking around with like his hands sort of like perched in yeah, the air, it was you know, weird. and he's, and it, it's like, he's, it's almost like a prance, but it's like an <laughs> aggressive prance. But if you go back and watch like the commander Cody serials or some of the other, even the early Batman and Superman one, that's what it was like this too. 
that's what they did. It was all this exaggerated action, almost vaudevillian it, yeah, in its yeah, approach. Yeah. It was really and, theatrical. And and Zane is like doing that. And it's and it's it's both off-putting and weird, but yet I look at it now and I say, like, I see what you're trying to do, and I appreciate it. Because you 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 got the memo. There are a lot of people in this movie who got the memo about what this is, but then in the midst of this, you know, a, a film is a, is a million moving pieces. The people who then interpreted what that was going to be, you know, who edited it and put sound to it and did all of that. Maybe they didn't get the memo in the same way. That's kind of the only way I can put it is this, there's a disconnect because so the basic story of this character, Kit Walker is, is the new phantom, his father, who he has visions of, just doesn't think that's bad or weird. It's just um, phantom things. It's just phantom things. You see the previous phantom who also happened to be your dad and he gives you dating advice even though he's dead and, you know, proves of your female, you know, companion choices. It, sure. Yeah, definitely. Totally. Fine. Uh, and and he is trying to stop this this splinter group of the Sang Brotherhood, this this ancient group of pirates from I'm sorry. I know it's ancient just group of the pirates. ancient group of pirates they've been pirating for so long that uh that the the they they had to get Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat to come and and be their leader at the end uh we'll get there but anyway uh and they're trying to reconnect these three jeweled skulls of various properties so that they can find something um money i guess i don't remember it's some kind of power some kind of energy it's very nebulous and again that's a sort of it's 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 macguffins right it's just nothing but macguffins it's macguffin after macguffin after macguffin but regardless um he has to stop them and that's pretty much the story uh, we do have a couple of side characters here. Uh, Christy Swanson is in this. Someone that you may not remember a ton, uh, but <laughs> who, uh, you know, at the time in the 90s was really, she was working a lot. She had had a ton of success in, uh, just, you know, the John Hughes films of the late 80s and early 90s and and was kind of being positioned as the next I don't know. I mean, not really leading lady. I like, it wasn't really that kind of thing. She'd done Buffy before this. And then, um, she was in the hot shots movies, I guess, which, you know, kind of set her up as like a vampy sort of sex symbol character for a little Mm -hmm. while. Um, and, and, and this, I think is trying to, to play on that somewhat. I, I think it's trying to set her up as that, and and she's fine in this. I don't want to make it sound like Christy Swanson is bad in this movie. She's not, but this is a bad she, movie. She's one of the people that I'm not sure got the memo, if yeah. you know what I'm saying, right? Like she's just kind of playing the standard. Like I wanted her to be rather than like, you know, the the vampy, you know, kind of like, oh, Kit, uh, I I just think you're so wonderful. Like instead of that, I wanted her to be like the fast talking. She's supposed to be like a reporter or something, right? I wanted her to be like the fast talking, like, hey, see, here's what we're gonna do. You like know, like Lois that. Lane. Yeah, like the 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 sort of idealized version of that 
era's Lois Lane, right? Not the Amy Adams Lois Lane, where she's just kind of sad all the time, but, but like the, the fast talking super, you know, super intelligent, super capable, you know, like, you know, gad about town, you know, reporter. And she's just kind of not, um, this is also an early Catherine Zeta Jones appearance. Um, and I think she comes out of this quite a bit better than everybody else. If I can put it that way, she actually comes out of this. Okay. For me. And she overshadows Christy Swanson in, in pretty much all of their scenes, even though that at the end of this, they're kind of like buddies, I guess. Um, just a, a weird project. So simple story, simple, basic bad guy, want thing superhero must stop him from obtaining thing. That's, that's kind of it. Um, but To what end? I, I I don't know. It's just it's it doesn't really work. Um, but at the same time, when it's not working, it still does have some fun at times. I remember liking this when I was was a kid. I thought this was pretty fun. But I was so desperate for superhero stuff. I think I would just take anything. You know, um, I didn't I didn't care. I remember us also being excited by that old Flash TV show. Like the mm-hmm. old, old one. Um, the John Wesley Ship CBS <laughs> drama, yeah. Uh, yeah. We were just, we were just, like you said, it was desperation. Like, we got to have something with superheroes. Um, yeah. But even, I don't know. I, I remember watching this movie. I remember we all, we saw it as a family. Mm-hmm. And thinking, this is weird. I think it just, it felt weird. Um, everyone was acting weird, <laughs> talking weird. Because um, even though I had seen a lot of old movies, I I don't even know if this nails it exactly right. Like, it, like, like we've been saying, it's just, it's off-putting. Yeah, like, the... I, I think what hurts it is that by the time this comes out, we have had both Lucas and Spielberg reinterpreting the classic movie serial into a modern, you know, action blockbuster extravaganza for a bit. And this movie is aware of that. Like I said, there's a lot of, we're trying to Indiana Jones this. It's, it's worth noting this movie was written by Jeffrey Bohm who wrote Indiana Jones three. Um, so there's, there's, genetic material from those films inherent inside of this. But, but those, the problem, those the, like you said, they're modern. This, exactly. This is corny. This is not modern. Like this is okay. So this movie opens and we're, we'll get into spoilers here in a bit, but this movie opens with the title card for those who came in late. Now, if again, why, <laughs> Why did they old say it movie, like that? <laughs> old movie serials were told in chunks, right? They were told in pieces. And you kind of had to, there was a section of each one of them where you had to kind of like get everybody up to speed, right? You had to, to sort of like get them like, Okay, here's what's going on right now. The for those who came in late things specifically was 
a kind of phantom phrase where, you know, if, if there was a, a, like a story beat that you didn't know, then this is, he would say like, for those who came in late, here's what's happening. Right. And it was, it was a reference back to those. So, I mean, like, but again, that's cheesy. I was 10 when I saw this movie. Right. And I didn't know shit about fuck, including the Phantom. I didn't know anything about the Phantom. So this movie just opens weird. <laughs> like, because I have no context and I've never had any context, like, this is just, this isn't a hero I know anything about. This isn't a universe I know anything about. And I just, I don't like it. <laughs> Yeah, again, it's it's something that it's a reference to the comics, you know, or the strips specifically, because again, it's something yeah. that Lee Falk wrote. But it's also sort of harkening back to this this you know classic movie serial time period, and it's just again, it's it's not recontextualizing this character for you know the modern film landscape. It's trying to cast it back, and the problem is is that you know most people don't really have a connect a connection to those film serials. You know, again, the secret that Lucas and Spielberg struck upon was we're going to reinterpret them as these new things. And we're going to call back to them because we love them, but we're going to put them through a filter and a lens that makes them more palatable for the watch movies. And if you're, if you're in on it, if you, if you get the reference, (laughs) whatever, like if you get it, then that's great, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's easily penetrable by other people you know that's like the key to marketability and i think that's where this movie fell down and you know and and the you know regardless of the for those who came in late thing and and you know like oh we're gonna like make this feel any movie that opens with voiceover narration over a scene of you know pirates fighting each other and it just not off to a great start. Not off to a great start. Like, you, you shouldn't have to do this. A, the story of the Phantom is not that complicated. This could be t- talked about far later. But again, the problem is, is that it's recreating very famous scenes from the origin of the Phantom. Like him crawling up on the beach as a boy and being found by the, the natives of Bangala or whatever. Like, all of, like, they're almost like shot for shot comic panels, right? Um, which, again, great if you're a Phantom fan. But who in 1996 is a massive fan? Yeah, like who? Like that's, who are they appealing to at this point? Yeah, how big was the audience supposed to be for this movie? <laughs> I, I'm really not sure. Yeah. It sort of carries itself like it was going to be the next big thing. Like that's the the vibe of the film, right? Um, and who? Just like whomst. <laughs> Like what? <laughs> who are the people who wanted this movie? I yeah. mean, I know like we all wanted mm. Batman, but like we know who Batman is, right? And Batman's a much easier character to grasp. Um, rich guy he, hates crime. That's it, right? And this is rich guy works for an African nation and saves them from outside interference. I guess and okay, okay. Uh, but. Yes. So this is, um, again, casual racism, casual racism everywhere. Uh, It's really not clear. I mean, this is supposed to be, I think the movie's trying to distance itself from it being an African nation. It's just trying to be 
a much more kind of generic, like, oh, this is like a, an exotic place because it just doesn't have some of that. I, I, I just feel like they're trying to diminish aspects of this that they know, even in 1996, they're like, oh, this really isn't a great, this isn't a good look. But in diminishing it, it just kind of makes it even worse. I, I, I don't know. It's it's bad. So he's the white savior. They give him a special uh, skull ring that's got powers or something. Again, very nebulous. And and then he grows to become the, the first phantom, which again, the, the phantom that we're going to catch up with happens like 300 years later. And it's like the fifth or sixth phantom or something. He's um, the 21st phantom. I looked it up. 21st okay even longer my bad uh yes he's he's a phantom and and he's, very late <laughs> he's in, a phantom in a long line of phantoms right so the the title card when we finally do sort of get to modern day or at least the day when this film's going to take place is that it's 1938 uh in the bengala jungle unspecified as to where it is right which again i think is them sort of already being like we probably shouldn't just say that this white guy is like running an African nation. That's like, they're trying, they're trying to like distance themselves from, from the racism, but they don't change any of the like visual context. No, try it and make it, you know, I don't know. It just, it feels weird, man. (laughs) It's, it's weird. And it hasn't, it, it really didn't age well. Then it certainly hasn't aged well now. Yeah. Uh, And so then we pick up with these, these two goobers, um, one played by James Remar, just in one of the most aggressive driving scenes I've ever seen. Like he is spinning that wheel. Like it's, I mean, you can tell they're just being pulled on a trailer, right? Like that's all that's happening here, but he is just like aggressively driving and good on him for being so, so big, but, or, or so, so willing to, to, uh, you know, drive aggressively. But we've got James Remar and Casey, uh, Samasco. Is that his name? He was in uh, Saving Private Ryan eventually, I think. Mm. Uh, and and they're just these two guys that I think were supposed, I think at some level they're supposed to be intimidating because they're like ostensibly some of the villains that we're going to follow for the most of the film. Uh, but they're just, they're just, they're goobers. Like I can't think of any other word to describe them. <laughs> they're just morons who are supposed to find intimidating. But anyway, um, so, yes, I, I guess, you know, in, in terms of the hero landscape, I could see somebody looking at the Phantom, comparing it to the success of something like Batman and saying, I think we can replicate this here. But they were wrong. <laughs> they were just yeah. wrong. Um, part of its marketing, like, I don't think they really knew what to do with this. I don't think they had a clear vision for what they wanted it to be as a film project. I mean, the tagline for this film that was on all the posters was slam evil. What I don't mean? I don't know mean? what that means. <laughs> like so we're going to take the metaphoric concept of evil and we're going to punch it. Is that it? Like is that yeah. what we're doing here? We're going to punch it with some purple. Some purple. And there is so I mean purple. again, the phantom is is a he's got a very distinctive costume. Uh you know, if you go back to the history of of, you know, these these pulpy superhero comic books, a lot of times their costume colors were chosen just so that they would read vibrantly on the page, like draw your eye. They're about contrast more than anything. Yeah. So, so purple at the time was not an easy color 
from what I understand, at least in newsprint to, to print, like it could be challenging for it to, to show up. And so it was a bold choice for Falk to make the character purple, but he was also a character that was frequently fighting inside of green jungles. So you needed that character to stand out against the background of the green. And of course, purple and green are contrasting colors. Um, so it, there was, there was some, some method to that madness, but again, like all of that gets lost. It felt, this felt like a movie that instead of leaning into that heavy purple for the phantom, it would have been better to tone it down just a little bit, which they do put some texturing on the costume to try and like diminish just like a, a you know, a purple plate standing in front of you, but it's, it's still not enough. Yeah. And it doesn't, and it he doesn't looks, make sense for somebody riding through the jungle in real life. He looks to weird. wear purple. This costume, I, I, I don't like it. Um, yeah, bad. I just, it's bad. It's a bad costume. Part of it is, is that the most, for the most of it, it's a spandex leotard. Like it's straight up yeah. a spandex leotard. Um, but the cowl, because they need him to have a certain sort of head shape. And apparently I, I think Billy Zane shaved his head. Well, to make it easier. Cause shave it, huh? I, mm, and, not eventually, eventually not. Nope. Uh, at this time he still had some hair, but he, I, I think he's wearing a, in all the scenes with hair, he's actually wearing a wig. Um, because <laughs> like getting his hair underneath that cowl and having it have the shape that they needed to was not happening. And so the cowl is kind of like the same sort of like, I guess latex sort of foam plastic that they used for things like Batman, that they could shape and sort of hold, but you get this really clear dividing line at the neck of like the plasticky cowl, the latex cowl, and then the spandex suit. And it just doesn't look good. And it doesn't really work. It doesn't Um, fit the, I mean, if you're going to make a movie that's set in a, in a time, like in a, in a time period and have everybody dressed in old timey clothes <laughs> with old timey textures. James Remark straight decor. up has a tied kerchief around his yeah. neck for like you're gonna, of this movie. If you're gonna do that, don't put like this rubber latex monstrosity, like you know, made out of chemical shit that won't be invented for another forty years kind of costume. It's just it looks so weird. You know, if you wanted to go yeah. for for something that feels like of of its time make it out of like natural fibers or make incorporate more leather elements to it like this just it just right it's so weird looking i don't like it. i really uh, I, and for this i'll point to um did you did you uh, we haven't really talked about this have you seen the pattinson batman did you guys ever watch that yes i actually went to the theater to see it Okay, I thought I thought you had. I thought you had, but I was I was just checking. Um I really liked the reinterpretation of Batman's cowl in that film because it is stitched and stacked leather. And I liked it a lot. Um I know it doesn't necessarily do all of the Batman things, the sharp nose and, and all of that stuff, but it really worked for me as a visual. And as I was watching this this time. Again, I know there there are 30 years of materials development and enhancement in between these two projects. So this is kind of an unfair thing to expect. But 
are you telling me nobody on that set looked at that cowl and said, you know, we could probably do like three or four panels of dyed leather and get there, right? Like we could probably do it. I, I just, I want to believe that somebody had that thought and then got shot down because I think it would just look better and more appropriate for the time period. Like yeah. I really do. I can understand spandex isn't going to work because spandex up over the head. I mean, we've seen dozens of, of superhero costumes try and do that and it just, it never works. Um, there's just, there's, it folds around the neck. You get creases everywhere. You know, you, if, if you want that profile, you want that look, you're going to need to use something else. But yes, this just doesn't hang together. It doesn't look like this guy's suit could feasibly exist. And we're also told that it's the same suit that they've been wearing, or at least like, is it similar. Magic? That's like three or 400 years old. So I, I don't know. And again, it's, it's not necessarily some kind of like earth breaking. Oh my God, I can't watch this film, you know, stand, you know, walk up to the front of the room and throw my movie ticket on the counter and be like, I can't handle it or anything, but it's, it does break it because everything else in the movie is trying very, very hard to look plausible from the 1930s. And, and this just doesn't, it just doesn't at all. So I guess we can get into a, a more sort of scene by scene breakdown a little bit, but I I think we've bagged on this movie (laughs) probably more than, than it deserves. Like it's, it's, fine like it's it's really fine it's more for the weird most part. than bad yeah it's just strange it's strange yeah. choices it's strange performances the script is not especially compelling a lot of the dialogue that thinks it's clever is actually kind of clunky yeah. um Patrick McGuhan is in this, uh, playing his dad. Like, I, I think that's worth noting. If you don't know the name Patrick McGuhan, uh, he's, you know, star of British stage and screen. Very famously, he was the lead in the now sort of like underseen show, The Prisoner, which is still just one of the most incredible TV productions ever. That show is so fucking weird. And so cool. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, uh, an a, a bona fide star. It feels like somebody said, we got to get an Alec McGinnis up in here, right? Like we got to, we got to have somebody to legitimize this, this thing, right? Like somebody has to yeah. be in here where we can say like, well, Patrick McGowan agreed to be in it. It's like, it's like putting Orson Welles in the Transformers movie, right? It's like, we got to <laughs> give some air of legitimacy to this thing. Cause otherwise it ain't working. Um, and very famously he was, uh, he was in the TV show, Danger Man, you know, which was kind of like that, you know, sort of like spy, secret agent, superhero thing, you know, so whatever. But so he's in this playing the dad and and providing the voiceover narration. And so he kind of, you know, is cool. Like, it's it's cool to see him in things. He was pretty aged at this point. But, um, you know, as a kid, I remember being like, oh, cool. It's it's Patrick McGowan, you know, Um but yeah, it's just, this is a, this is like a classic example of something we talk about a lot where you have all of these elements that you need to make like a, an okay film, like a workable film. And they just do not sock it together. Like they do not lock into a cohesive whole that feels satisfying. Uh, and as a result, this thing was a, a massive flop, like, Oh, in goodness flop. Like, it budgeted at 45. They made 23 million worldwide on this thing. Nobody saw this. 
And, you know, this is the year after Batman Forever, which was an incredible smash. Uh, undeservedly, the movie's not good, but still, like, it, it made just tremendous amounts of cash, and this thing just died on the vine. Uh, and, and, deservedly like i don't i don't think this is necessarily a movie that people need to go back and be like oh yeah the phantom bro uh but it's it's something and i i don't even know how you would have marketed this movie successfully because nobody's in it and Mm -hmm. like i don't want to say nobody's in it because that's mean but nobody in this movie should be in this movie sure why did like all of the actors cast why are they here So they don't have any bankable stars. Mm -mm. And they have a weird trailer, because I do remember the trailers, and a weird costume. (laughs) And that's it. So, like, I don't know what anyone expected. Like, I I don't know. I just would love to see archive footage of these board meetings where they're like, I don't understand. (laughs) I thought... I really thought this was going to be a big hit, guys. Sorry. My bad. Yeah, I mean, like, you've got Billy Zane, who Billy Zane was in another Australian production called Dead Calm, which was, a, again, one of the first, like, big successes out of the Australian film industry. Um, and that movie's had, horrifying. Oh, it's it's a terrifying thriller. Like, and he's excellent in it. Yeah, but it, it's, it's, it's exactly the kind of role I think of Billy Zane. For Billy Zane. Exactly. <laughs> but nothing about that movie... He was in, uh, you know, I kind of jokingly in our Discord mentioned Demon Knight, you know, like he was great <laughs> Demon Knight, uh, which he is. But again, he's playing this kind of like sadistic, you know, weirdo kind of character. Like, I don't know who there's, thought there's Billy reason. Zane was a great lead for this. You know? There's a reason that Cal Hockley is like the role that he's known for. It's because it's the perfect kind of character for him to play a bastard. Mm-hmm. That's true. He's That's really, really true. good at it. He's very good at it. And, and so when I look at his and other his career roles, has borne that out. Yeah. When I look at his other roles, it's like this is this is your strong suit, but hero. I don't uh, know. I don't know about no. that. That's weird. I mean, he has the jawline. I don't want to make it seem like he's he he doesn't have the look. Um, yeah, it's not. It's not that. But it's it's the it's the charisma component. It, yeah, right? it's like, the it's type of that, actor that he it's is. The energy. <laughs> You know, and, and it, it's the, the vibes. Word. It's the vibes. Like he just doesn't read as that when he's not in the mask. When he's just Kit Walker, kind of like it's a little better, I guess, because he is sort of like an arrogant, um, arrogant, but not. I, I don't know. Again, there's a lot of like real. We're not really characterizing anybody in this movie. We're just playing single dimension stereotypes. Like there's really no depth to anyone in this film. We're just reading a script. Yeah. It's, it's, and again, if that was intentional, like, Oh, we're going to do like the old serials. This is the bad guy. This is the good guy. This is the slightly less good guy. Like then whatever, but that doesn't, I mean, it's not satisfying in terms of modern film audiences. I don't think. Um, So, you know, he's not a great lead he's doing a lot with what he's working with. And and again, I, I do want to say, I think his physicality is very good. Like I like his physical performance when he's in the phantom costume. Um, when it's a stunt guy, it's super obvious that it's a stunt guy. I did want to point that out too. And, and that's just, that's the nineties. They didn't, 
they didn't do face replacements or anything on people. So when you see a dude getting thrown off a horse, you know that it's not Billy Zane and, and, and you can tell from the face and the physique and everything. It's yeah. not Billy Zane and that's fine. Right. Like whatever. I'm not, you know, you can see an Indiana Jones when it's not Harrison Ford too. Like, I, I don't want to make it seem like the, I think that's fine. I don't think actors it's should fine. have to hurt themselves. No, no, Unless it's, it's totally okay. But again, when you're in a bright purple suit that shows every single aspect of your physicality, maybe you shouldn't set up your shots like that. Maybe you should mm. do something else. Um, okay. So uh, the other thing I'll mention before we get into our breakdown is treat Williams. Isn't uh, God Williams, rest his soul. God, God rest his soul. I was so sad when he passed because I've, you know, treat Williams. What he made some really awesome movies in his time. And, uh, you know, I loved the substitute when it came out. I thought that movie was great. It was so, so ridiculous. and so silly. Um, I've always liked treat Williams as an actor. I thought he was pretty underrated. It seemed like he was one of those guys that never really got, I don't want to say his big break. I mean, cause he was a lifelong actor. He worked very hard. He, he worked really right up until, you know, the, the moment that he died, he was setting up more projects. So I, I really, um, I just never really felt like he hit, you know, even though he was always in a bunch of stuff. I mean, he's in the empire strikes back uncredited, right? Like that's crazy. <laughs> like who can say that? Right. Um, but in this movie, we talk about people. We talk about people chewing scenery in films as a pretty as a pretty regular like, hey man, you know he's chewing that scenery. Treat Williams isn't just chewing the scenery; he is devouring it. He is and digesting he is it, digesting it on screen. Maybe he's shitting it out. I don't know. It, it's but he is- this is like next level here's my favorite thing about this movie and kind of the thing that i liked watching the most he's having such a great time like he really feels like again we we talked about like there are people in this movie who got the memo treat williams got the memo he's like oh he wrote the memo i am the one who sent it out i am the guy who's twirling the mustache in the background and and literally going all right let's go um, and, and he's just, he's enjoying it. He's oblivious. Like he's a character who's literally trying to set up what appears to be the end of the world. And he's just having a great time. He's it's, just loving it. It's a great villain. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Now I, there are some interesting, you know, sort of trivia bits. If you dig into the trivia, a lot of directors were attached to this, right? A, bunch of directors so sergio leone was the first one to express interest in doing a phantom film because he was working on an adaptation of mandrake the magician who which was fox like other big comic strip characters so that's kind of where it started then joe dante got called in in the early 1990s and was one of the first ones to develop the script with Jeffrey Bohm. Cause it sounds like Bohm ended, ended Indiana Jones and then immediately got attached to do Phantom. That's what it seems like. So Joe Dante came in and, and according to Dante, the script that they developed was a spoof. 
like it was made to be a joke right like that was dante's goal was to was to basically and and if you think about this film in these terms it starts to make more sense is like batman comes out and it's kind of this serious thing it's got camp it absolutely does jack nicholson is doing camp in in the original batman but like if you think of it in terms of like oh okay batman came out and it was this like grim gritty you know dark oh serious you know his parents got murdered for god's sake ah you know like that kind of thing and then you see Joe Dante come in and be like, I just made Gremlins 2, the new batch. Fuck studios. <laughs> We're going to fucking do something crazy. Then you can sort of see where this is. Because I think Xander Drax is the pure remnant of this movie as a spoof. Because they were like that version of Phantom was, according to Dante, weeks away from shooting. Like they were setting it up. They were going down. They were going to do it. And they absolutely pulled the plug under it. Uh, I could believe that because he does not fit with anything else in the movie, in the script, anything. No, no, not at all. And it can't just be the performance. Like I know that most of it is like, that's the driving force is the performance is just great. Um, But even the character, like the, (laughs) the villain arc, there's nothing else going on in this movie. <laughs> like it no. is so dry. And so, and so what Dante said, and, and this is from an, an interview that he did uh, with the den of geek uh, many moons ago. He said the, that they, they spun this, they spun it back up a year later. They gave it to Simon Windsor. Supposedly Schumacher was in the running for it before he got Batman. So like Schumacher was also being considered for this. They give it to Simon Windsor, who, again, I have no issues with Simon Windsor. He's made some good movies, but he's a workman director, right? He's the guy you hand the thing to and say, go shoot the thing. And and according to Dante, he went to some of the test screenings because he's still on it as a producer somewhere. Like, he's he's still in the mix somewhere deep in the producer credits. And he's like, they completely didn't get that we wrote the script to be ridiculous and funny. Like, the whole thing was meant to be a joke. And they tried to play it straight. They tried to treat it like it was like a straight action movie. And he's like, it was a disaster. <laughs> like, so, you know, and, and when you look at the film through that context of like, this could have been a Joe Dante, Joe Dante Gremlins, the new batch level spoof of, of a goofy superhero genre thing. It makes a fun. lot more sense. It makes a lot more sense. And it would have been a, Last, it would have made no money. People would have hated it, but it would be it would now be, be a cult, cult classic. Yeah. It would be a cult classic all day long. This thing would be watched in in uh, art house movie theaters. There would be a Rocky Horror Picture Show, like uh, you know, when Phantom says "Slam Evil," we throw popcorn at the screen. Like like it would be that I think. But again, it's one of those things like. The people who wrote the scripts, the people who got the acting jobs, the people who produced and directed, nobody sort of knew the movie they were making or was able to communicate that. And this is the result. It's just this awkward thing that has moments of like, yeah, you know, it's pretty cool. Um, But yeah, I, I, I don't know. Supposedly, I, I will say one of the other things about the, the Billy Zane casting issue. Um, when 
I guess another part of this is that the Phantom is apparently a bigger deal in Australia than a lot of other places. So the strip is very popular there. It's popular here too. It is. It is. It's really popular in Sweden. (laughs) Uh, It's, it's just one of those things like, you know, characters resonate in different ways. And so he actually, when he was working on dead calm, supposedly said, Hey, you know, he was introduced to the strip while he was in Australia and it was like, and he became a big fan. But the other person who was in Australia working at the time who was up for this, who would have, what dark haired, well chinned actor was in Australia working on projects at this time? Can you think of them? Well, if you mention an actor with the chin and dark hair, Bruce Campbell? Like, yes. Seriously? Bruce, Bruce Campbell was in the running <laughs> for the Phantom. Wow. And again, if you think about Bruce Campbell in a spoof version that, of this, I would have directed by Joe Dante, this and, would have changed the course of that man's career. And I like, gotta say, Bruce Campbell <laughs> would have looked cool in that suit. <laughs> he would have looked pretty good in that suit, man. That, if chins could kill. Right. So... Um, yeah, very, very interesting stuff here where you get the impression that if that original Dante project with Bohm could have really seen the light of day, could have been developed in, in the method that they were thinking, I think this would be, we'd be talking about a very different film and potentially a film that I get, I don't think it would have found box office success in the 1990s. Cause I think that Batman forever tried to do a bit of that too. Right. If yeah. you look at Joel Schumacher's take on Batman, he was spoofing, you know, Batman and Robin ultimately, you know, got there, if you want to call it that. But I, I don't think this movie would have been a success in the traditional sense, but it would be beloved now. Yeah, I really do think that. Um, but anyway, so let's let's get to the breakdown. I, I think, you know, in terms of recommend, you know, at this early stage, it's kind of a no for me. There's not enough here to justify the time expenditure. Although this is a blissfully short, like 98 minutes or something. Um, But it's, it just struggles on so many levels, even though there are moments in it that are really fun. And what I'll say is if you want a movie that does, that knows what it is and is having a better time at it, just watch the rocketeer. I mean, Jesus. Yeah. Just watch that. It's better all, all around. All the performances Um, are good. Absolutely. And I mean, and if you're talking about taking a relative unknown, that's just like attractive as hell and throwing them on screen, Billy Campbell wins. Yeah. <laughs> he just wins. Yeah, he um, Cause that man still looks amazing. Holy shit. Uh, again, I've, I know I've mentioned it on here before in our TV podcast, but uh, I actually rewatched most of Cardinal, his, his uh, detective show on Canadian television that got thrown on Hulu. I think it's still there. Uh, Dude, just incredible. Like, dude's amazing. Love, love Billy Campbell. Uh, okay, so let's, let's, uh, so it's, a, it's not really recommended for me. Uh, what about you? What do you want to say at this, this stage? I don't think I could recommend this. You, like, I could say, like, oh, you know, if you're a hardcore fan of The Phantom, if you're a hardcore fan of The Phantom, you've already seen this movie and, and made your decision. Um, because my, my ultimate, early initial takeaway is I don't know who this movie's for. I don't know who would wanted to see this in 1996. And I don't think anyone wants to see it now. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's sort of like bastardized production 
has left it in a state where it's like, I don't know who this movie is for. It's not serious enough to appeal to the Batman people. It's not jokey enough to be the sort of like goofy comic strip, fun classic film, but it's, it, it just doesn't have an identity when it does break through. I think it is a lot of fun. Like I said, I, I love, you know, the, the physicality of Zane's performance. I know I'll mention that again as we go, but I love how sort of like over the top and over dramatized it is. I love treat Williams. Again, Catherine Zeta Jones is kind of a fun femme fatale archetype here. Like there are people doing good work. Um, it just but doesn't it's, it's, coalesce. Yeah. That, that good work is sort of toward nothing. So, if we're going to do the breakdown, um, again, I don't know if we need to do scene by scene. I, I don't think this movie. I think that would be that excruciating. Kind of, it would be painful because most of the scenes in this kind of amount to nothing. They, they don't really go anywhere or do anything. They're just um, going to end. <laughs> yeah, they just, it's, it's just a string of things that happen. Um, but the film opens with, you know, the, the we're going to catch you up, you know, for those who came in late kind of thing. Um, I hate that. <laughs> The, the Phantom, you know, the, the attacked by the Sang Brotherhood, this group of pirates, he lands in Bengala, which again, they've taken out of Africa expressly. I know they shot big chunks of this in like Singapore or something. Um, so they really tried, they pulled in a lot of uh, you know, actors from that region seemingly. So they're trying to kind of flatten where this is and what this is. It's just fantasy jungle place. And uh, so we're introduced to James Remar, who's some kind of lackey. He has a weird spider saying brotherhood tattoo on his, his neck. And, and again, they're trying to be goofy. So you can feel the goofiness of it. Cause they've got this like kid who's their guide to try and get them through the jungle. And then they have this whole long sequence where they have to get a thing across a, they have to get a truck across a bridge and they're too chicken shit to do it themselves. So they make this little kid drive this truck across a bridge, even though it might get him killed. And, it's it's just ridiculous, and it's all to get to this magical cave with all these riches. It's so long. The opening of this movie, it is straight up like ten minutes yeah. before the Phantom even shows. <laughs> um, and and that ten minutes, it's not like they're doing really interesting, exciting stuff. It's it's literally like three bumbling morons driving a truck through the jungle. Like that's it, and it and it's not especially funny. It's not played for laughs, even though there are sort of are you know sort of seemingly funny moments. Like there's the scene where the kid successfully takes the truck across the bridge and then refuses to stop accelerating, like he's going to hit them with the truck. That you know, Remar's like, "Hey, look out! Get off the brake! What are you doing?" You know, he's like just doing this. Like this could be played for laughs. This could be funny, but it ends up not being funny because it's they're weird. taking it too seriously. Um, and so they're going to a cave. The cave is being monitored by quote unquote natives. Again, Ugh. God, uh, really? It's it, it's not 1930s for them apparently because they're just wearing feathers and shit. It's like okay, yep, all right. Just yeah, embarrassing. Definitely. It's embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. Again, if it was a goofy, silly thing where somebody came in and be like, "Why are you dressed like that?" Then okay, fine, like, whatever. But So they get to the cave, there's booby traps in the cave, the booby traps are lame, there's a spider. It, hey, do you know, have you ever seen a movie with a cave with treasure in it? Well, here you go. Like, it's one That's of those. It. 
It's one of uh, those. And they're trying to find a magical skull that apparently nobody remembers is there, even though it's kind of just out in the open and super obvious and didn't seem terribly challenging to get to. But okay. So they get it and and that awakens the phantom? Like I, I guess I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He's he's sitting in a throne in a cave and we get this again in a different film, it might be really funny. You know, we get like the classic like light band across the eyes and he's just kind of looking as if he knows something is wrong. <laughs> like, oh, the, the air has changed, you know, something's different. And, and so then he, he stands up and we see his belt. Like I, it's a leotard and he's got a belt with a skull on it. I don't really know how exciting that costume is. And they've seemed to shoot this like they think his costume is really exciting. And it's not. It's just it's not that interesting. I mean, well, it's not know, it's not Joel Schumacher being like you know with the the George Clooney like butt shot. It's not that. But 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 it does remind me of the bat suit scenes. You know how like every yeah it, every it moment they reveal the bat suit in a Batman movie, it's always like this horny ass scene for the nerds <laughs> in the audience that are like, oh yeah, show me the look fucking at, suit, man. Look at that utility belt. Mm, you know, because they got it, nice. they got to form their opinions so they can complain about it later. Right. So that's what it felt like, but it's it's it would be followed up by like the comedy foghorn. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and so. You know, then the phantom like rides out of the jungle on his white horse, who also has a skull belt on, because you know your horse bridle also needs to represent your brand. <sighs> and you know, I don't want to make it seem like there's no like good action in this. There are some well staged action scenes. There's the one right at this this opening part. He like he's riding by on the horse and he grabs a guy kind of by the collar and then runs him into a tree. And it's like, Oh, that's, yeah. that's pretty good. You know, that's a cool idea. I've never seen that in another movie. Um, but then like James Remar just sort of like bumbles his way back to the truck. And I'm like, dude, this guy is bearing down on you full speed at a horse and you're going reverse in a truck. He has guns. Like, what are you doing? Like, I, I just don't understand what their motivation is here, but, um, so guess what? We wind back up at the bridge. The bridge is collapsing and we get a recreation of the scene from Temple of Doom. Like, I, I don't know how else to put it. It's just Temple of Doom. Uh, we do get a great gymnastics sequence. Um, and I do, this was, am I wrong that th these were really popular for a while where you would have somebody like jump off a thing and then the, like they would obviously replace them with a professional gymnast of some kind. Beats of strength. Like, you know, yeah, they would like spin on a pole or they would would do a little flip or do like a ring move, you know, like the on the on the balance rings or something. And 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 they just they do that and, and somehow he gets onto the top of the truck. I, I'm not really sure how or why because the truck's still in motion. It's of strike. And and so then okay, so I, I did want to call out specifically, I'd written down. Billy Zane's punching. Uh, so the Phantom does have this like big skull ring and they make a big thing about showing it off. Cause like, and, and Hey, skull rings are fucking cool. Skull rings are fucking cool, man. If the nineties emo scene has shown us nothing, it's that skull rings are fucking cool. And, and he, Zane's punches in this are like really specific. They're very measured. 
They're very careful. They're not fast. I mean, like he's literally, it's, I mean, again, the tagline is slam evil. So maybe that's the idea, mm-hmm. but they, they feel kind of hammerish, right? Where he's just like, bonk, bonk. I, 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 it's the sound I hear in my head when he's punching people. And he just, it's this very specific action. He does it for the whole movie. Like every <laughs> time he punches somebody, that's how he's put. It's not like he's boxing them. It's not like he's, you know, left cross, right hook. You know, it's just like, nope, just this one punch, just bonk right in the head. <laughs> and again, if it's this specific thing, then great. But but what is I'm, it? <laughs> I just don't understand it. I don't do it. And so the biggest problem is that the Phantom gets defeated by James Remar, this like absolute goober. And I just don't understand how it happens. I know it's that he, he decides to rescue the kid who's in the back of the truck instead of chasing the bad guy or whatever. And he's a hero and, and what have you like, sure. He makes whatever. a little friend for life. And he makes a little buddy. And, and again, I, None of this is exciting. Like that's the problem. Like this is this should be like a really legitimately solid action sequence, and it just isn't. Uh, it's not shot exci- in an exciting way. It's mostly shot wide. It's just not interesting, and and I can't really explain why it's not interesting. But well, it's, it's not interesting. It's funny that somebody worked on this script who who previously worked on Last Crusade, which had a really great vehicular action scene mm-hmm. with a tank. It was neat. <laughs> um, and then, and then this, it just doesn't hit, but it, it almost has to be like the way that it's shot because like, this could have been really cool. This could have been as cool as the tank in last crusade, but it just, mm-hmm. it's just so dull. I don't know. Like the, like you said, the action is fine, but it's just, I don't know. So I, the impression I get, the the analog that I'll make here, and, and it's not a fair analog because the scene that, that I'm referencing here is actually quite good. But like very famously, the, the, uh, the assault on the jungle base in Predator, that whole thing was actually set up and shot and executed by the same stunt team that did the A-team, right? Because Frankenheimer, you know, is a great action director, but they didn't have time to, like, work everything out. So they brought in those people to do it because they were very familiar with, like, we have two days to shoot this. We have this much explosives. We have this kind. We have this many Jeeps that we can flip. And they would just put together an action sequence based on what they had, which is why the A-Team was able to have, like, a pretty decent final action thing at the end of most episodes. And so that sequence is it's very good i'm not putting it down but it feels totally different from the rest of predator right like yeah that that sequence stands out as being like this doesn't hang with the rest of this movie it's a totally different thing and and it's like the action in this movie doesn't hang with anything else like it just doesn't fit with what the rest of the movie is and maybe it's because they, you know, the Australian, you know, stunt teams and stuff, maybe they had more input or maybe they didn't have the time to execute uh, the way that they wanted to. It's it's hard to say, but the action, pretty much all of it, even the small scale action where it's just Billy Zane punching people inside of a room, it just doesn't have much weight and it's not very exciting. 
Um, and in a movie like this, you kind of need it to be. Cause like, what else are you here for? Right? Like what are, like, yeah. what is this? Like, what else are you offering me if you're not offering me cool action sequences? And this one, it feels especially egregious because it has all of the makings of an all-timer, right? Like you said, like, it's it's got all the pieces that Steven Spielberg had for Last Crusade or Temple of Doom, but it just feels flat. You know, like, it doesn't matter. Like, there's no excitement to it. Um, and and that, that, I think, hurts this opening. Cause I mean, really after that action sequence, we are 20 plus minutes into this thing and, and it's, it's been kind of unexciting and uninteresting, which is, is sort of a death knell for a movie like this. If you haven't gotten my intention in 20 minutes, you're, you're not going to get it. <laughs> you're not going to get it. Nothing's going to happen. That's going to be like, Oh, well here now I'm on board. Ah, uh, yes. The ghost of Patrick McGuhan. That will get me <laughs> on board. Um, this unexplained uh, ghost daddy that hangs around with Billy Zane. That's, that's definitely the hook, right? Um, so, so then the movie after 20 minutes in Bangala with uh, Billy Zane, we, we go to New York because of course we do. We have to. And, and we get introduced to our, our other characters, which Again, all of this just feels kind of turgid and uninteresting to me. Uh, we get Christy Swanson, who's supposed to be the gal about town, you know, up and coming reporter returning home. She's utterly and, forgettable. And that's the biggest thing. Like, she's just not given anything to work with here. Um, I, I think she could be very intriguing. She certainly has the look. They've got her hair done up in that 30s style. <clears throat> um, you know, it. it she's basically dressed like Amelia Earhart. Like, I think that was kind of the vibe they were going for. And, and it just, to what end, right? So she's attending a charity gala or something. And that's where we get introduced to, uh, the guy who's interested in her and she's not interested in him. She's making herself a sandwich, even though there's literally food everywhere. I, I, I don't tricky. really know. She wants a set. That's right. She wants a, a hearty sandwich. It's just right. like Diana to make a sandwich when everyone else has caviar. <laughs> That's right. Just wants a hearty sandwich <laughs> uh, to, to Matt Berry the moment. <laughs> uh, and, and so then we get uh, exposition dump, right? Because we have to explain all this, right? We've seen the, we've seen the goobers stealing the skulls, but what, to what Who end? were those goobers? <laughs> Who were those goobers? <laughs> And uh, they keep talking about the saying brotherhood and this weird spider tattoo and all this is bad and into the world. And just again, if this was meant to be goofy and stupid, it would, I, you would be laughing, just rolling. Like, cause like there's that dramatic moment where the, the, the newspaper daddy, I don't even remember his name. It doesn't matter. He like hands the guy an envelope and he opens it up and there's all this like, Oh, Oh. And it's just a picture of the tattoo that we've already seen. Like, <laughs> like it's just that on this old piece of paper. And everybody's like, Ooh, it's like, all right. Like, so ultimately what we find out is that there's this guy who is supposed to be this New York, uh, I'm I was trying to think of like a period analog, right? Is he, He's not really like a Howard Hughes type, but he's supposed to be, you know, the, the rich, um, you know, billionaire playboy, you know, industrialist, whatever. 
but but Williams is just totally unhinged as this character. He's they've got him in the little the little pencil mustache, his hair is all slicked back, the nice suits. He has a he's a bit intimidating, especially in the first scene, because the first scene's the one where he like um he wants the scholar or something to look through the microscope. Is that what it is? Uh well the first scene that he's in? I think so. Isn't that it? I thought that was the party. Well, yes, he is at the party. I, I guess that's true. But then, like, he's in his office, and he has the guy come in, and he's, like, consulting with him about something. Yeah, that's the next one. Yeah. And then he, he you know, uses it to stab the guy in the eyes. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, okay, it seems inefficient. Uh, he's like, press the little button on the side. That'll That'll help you see. And then, like, you know, it stabs him in the eyes and kills him because uh, he's a liar. Um, I, and you know, like I, I guess it's intimidating, but it's also goofy. Like everything's yeah. just kind of goofy, and, well, and it's to, like I, I have to say, I have not, I had not seen this movie since we watched it in 1996. Sure, yeah. this was the first time I had seen it again. And I realized the only thing that I remembered, other than, oh, that costume is bad. The only thing that I remembered was a line from Treat Williams saying his name and, like, how he said it. So this this was, yeah. like, this made such an impression that it was the only thing that stuck with <laughs> the only me. Thing that stuck out your mind. Just him. And, like, I remembered it was him, remembered what he looked like, the moment he said it, and I'd be like, that guy's funny. But that that was it. That's it. Yeah, his name it. is incredible. <laughs> his name is Drax. Xander Drax. Beginning and ending with X. Which which feels like they were at some point maybe going to develop it into some kind of weird palindrome. Like his name was a palindrome or something, but it just didn't land. Uh, but yeah, Xander Drax, X and X. And, and, you know, again, there's some intimidation here. Treat Williams is having a lot of fun. Like I, I have almost no notes on it. I, like I, it's hilarious to watch because you just spend the time going like, what is, what is he doing here? Cause he's just gleeful. He's just having a great time. And I well, think he exposes how, how every other person in the movie feels like they hate themselves. Like they just, they yeah. look like they hate themselves. They act like they hate themselves. And he's the only one who's like, why isn't, why aren't you having fun? Like I'm having fun. Yeah. We're all having fun here. Let's have fun. Um, and, and it just doesn't necessarily work. And so then Diana Palmer in an attempt to research the saying brotherhood. Okay. I'm really, I'm trying to remember here. She decides to travel to Bengala because reasons. And then she gets kidnapped by pirates, uh, air pirates, which is where uh, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones comes into it. Because Xander Drax is trying to stop her investigation, I guess. I guess that's the idea. Um, it's, yeah, again, like, there's there's really, there's not a lot of connective tissue here. And I, I think it's okay. This movie doesn't need it. It certainly wouldn't make it better if, if it did. Um but, you know, she uh, is, her dad's the one that owns this World Tribune newspaper, and they've been investigating Xander Drax, and so she's trying to 
to figure out what the connection between Drax and, and the spider symbol is. So she's going to go hunt that down. And, but he, oh, that's right. Cause like Xander Drax owns the police. So he tells the police commissioner, oh, I'm sending Diana to look at this. And then he tells Drax and Drax has them go get her presumably to use as like collateral against her dad or something like whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. But basically, we have to get Diana to Bungala. Like that's that's what needs to happen here, and and that's where it goes because, of course, it's a small world. Kit Walker went to school with Diana Palmer. Of course, because there's of, only one high school in all of the U.S. Just one, and Kit Walker went there. Uh, or I guess it was college, but still, it doesn't. Whatever school. And so they the air pirates kidnap her. Phantom ends up rescuing her. And then it's revealed that, you know, before his father was killed by James Remar, which again, putting a lot on James Remar's shoulders here. Dude is a goober. Dude's straight up like an idiot. And now we're also told that he killed the previous Phantom by stabbing him in the back. Um, which again, I just don't buy it. I just do not buy that this character is smart enough or, or salient enough as an individual to pull that off. He most of all maybe almost as much as Billy Zane looks like he does not want to be in this movie. He doesn't want to be there, man. He's, he is collecting a paycheck. He has no idea what's going on. <laughs> and, and he's just, he's just like, I'm an intimidating man. Yeah, like intimidate. His delivery doesn't help at all, but it just, you can tell when somebody's just not here. <laughs> let's, let's not forget. Uh, and again, the fact that James Remar is cop to all of this, I think, says a lot about who he is as a person today. Um, but James Remar apparently really enjoyed cocaine for large swaths of this time period. And I just think he's here because they're paying him on a regular basis and that allows him to have cocaine. I think that's what's happening. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe. Anyway. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, so the Phantom is made wise to the fact that uh, the Sang Brotherhood or these air pirates have uh, a lady held captive and he's going to go rescue her or something. And then, of course, that's when he realizes it's Diana. We also did get the scene between him and the British officer that basically establishes that the British know that the Phantom is out there and they're working with him and, you know, all the stuff, whatever. Pointless, pointless, pointless information. Makes no sense. Doesn't matter. Um and and yeah, like he goes and rescues, and, and then that is what gets him to New York to confront Xander Drax, because um, Diana, you know, tells him that that's who's you know kind of behind all this stuff. And and so he dresses up as a civilian, goes and meets with all of them, and they figure out that Drax is collecting these skulls that, when combined, will point to. Uh, something. I I really can't. I'm struggling to remember what it is. It's it's um, it's a place. It's a place called the Devil's Vortex, right? Oh yeah. Yes, which is like they for some reason they didn't think they could use the Bermuda Triangle. They had to call it something else for reasons well, unknown. Uh, yeah. Bermuda Triangle Tourism Board asked them not to. That's right. They were like, hey, we don't want to be associated. We don't need any more this. negative press. And I will say, like, when Phantom comes onto the air pirate ship, 
there's some fun shenanigans. Like he's going down laundry shoots and, and again, this Zane's physicality in some of these scenes is just great. Like when he lands out of the laundry chute, he like lands fully, like just leg spread, shoulder length apart, just like, huh. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. <laughs> like he's not thrown off by it. Like he's obviously fallen like 30 feet and he's just he just lands confidently. It's just it's so goofy. <laughs> it's the goofiest little stuff. And he's just and and then he just rips the gun out of her hand. Like there's some nice, cool moments in it. I I don't want to make it seem like in the scenes where they get the tone of this thing kind of close, it's fun. Like it is a good time. The problem is is that it's just not enough of the movie. Um so, you know, there's an escape, they get back to New York, there's a lot of nineteen you know, thirties architecture and cool stuff. That's obviously on a sound stage in a set that looks like it was freshly built. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, man. Like again, this movie doesn't look good. That's part of my issue with it. It just doesn't, it doesn't look good. It doesn't have like a good, the lighting's not especially great. The, the framing really flat. is, it's yeah, it's just all flat and kind of dull. Um, and then the, the, the outdoor New York scenes, I'm like, why did you guys do this? Like, don't do this. It's, it's rear projection, big buildings, and obviously a sound stage where they just recreated some stuff. It's, it's not good. It, it reminds me a lot of, um, some of the Peter Jackson, King Kong outdoors when they tried to do New York and it's not New York. And I'm like, you guys, this just doesn't, I mean, the, Maybe now, maybe now with you know modern technology, everything would be fine. But this just doesn't look great, and and I, I just wish they hadn't tried. Uh, you know, do it inside the lobby. Like have these scenes inside a lobby of a big you know building in New York. Don't do street scenes because these don't work. Um, there is an awkward little. I, I okay, you talked about things that you remembered really clearly. The scene that I remembered really clearly, and I cannot explain why, is when he's paying the cabbie in Precious Jewels. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, that scene, like, he got out of the taxi, and I was like, oh, he's about to pay him with a handful of, like, diamonds and shit. And he's like, doesn't even care. I, I knew it. I remembered it. I was like, oh, my God, I remember this. And I don't know why. I don't know why that scene sticks out in my mind. Because it's like, I, I don't know the name of that actor. I should know. Um... John Capadice, huge TV actor. The, the, the movie that I remembered him for at the time was that he's, he's Sergeant Aguado yeah. in Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Like that's, that's where I knew him <laughs> from when I saw this movie as a kid. Now it's also worth noting just as part of, cause again, I feel like there were certain elements of this set up under the Joe Dante version that persisted after they spooled it back up for the Simon Winsor version, because uh, Joe Capadice is also the fire chief in gremlins to the new batch. Mm. And, and if there is anything we know about Joe Dante, Joe Dante likes working with the same people over and over and yeah. over again. So I have no doubt that he was cast as the cabbie under the Joe Dante version of this movie, which again, maybe why his scenes work fairly well is because he knows this is a comedy. Yeah. 
right? Like he plays it like a comedy. Like when Kit gets back in the car later and he's like, anything you need, sir, anything you need at all. Like, you know, like it's, it, that's, that's funny. That's a setup and payoff. So I I don't know. There's just little bits of that, but that was one scene that I remembered is him paying him in precious gems and being like, (laughs) I'll take you anywhere. Right. Like that whole thing. Um, so then, you know, we need to continue sort of establishing that Xander Drax is crazy. So we get like him consolidating his power with the mob bosses and everything. And then he straight up just spears a dude. In the room. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, crazy. like pulls a spear off the wall and just spears a guy to a door. And then like, again, in a different film, this would be this scene. It still is, but it would be even more hilarious because when he pulls the guy off the wall, he's not upset about anything else. He's upset because there's now a notch in his like super nice door. <laughs> he's he like fucks up his shoulder. He's like spitted his shoulder. He's like, ooh, God, like ugh, tossing that spear and murdering that man really threw my shoulder. <laughs> like it's just He's having such a good time and this movie is not respecting it. And I can't, it just, it would be so much more fun. Uh, Like he, he ducks under the spear, he rips it out of the guy and then he's like analyzing the spot in the wall. It's, it's so funny and it's so good. Uh, He's like looking at the Nick and the door. Oh God. You know, Uh, it's, it's great. So treat Williams, wonderful. Uh, most of this New York stuff I, I think is great because they figure out that one of the skulls is just like in a museum downtown and it has been forever. And just like, even though he listened to York, he just didn't know the, because there was an unmentioned third skull, a Jade skull or something. So they meet there. It's the first confrontation. It's very goofy, but the best part is, and, and again, in a different movie, the scene would be great he puts the two skulls together, like has this big thing. He's like telling everybody, Hey, this is all just museum security. There's lemon bars in the <laughs> room. Or whatever. Like head on over there guys. And then they assemble the two, the, the three skulls, I guess I guess they have all three of them at this point. And then no, it points to the third skull. They put the two together and it makes a little laser beam. And my God, this scene did you notice like all of the, the, the lighting, like they basically had lights hanging with filters on them and they were just swinging them. I, yes. I, it's so weird. Like this scene, just even as a kid, I remember being like, what is happening? But so I, I love that they don't bother explaining anything. And he puts the two skulls <laughs> together. It makes a laser beam that just so happens to point to a world map in the room. And like, like again, like Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, it points to the exact spot. They can find the third skull, right? Like uh, just on a rando map on the wall. It, it, it points to it, but tree Williams sells the whole thing. Cause he's standing in the middle, holding these skulls. And he's just like, I am having the time of my life. <laughs> I, I love this. This is great. It's blowing out windows. There's, you know, just terrible things happening. He's like, this is incredible. <laughs> it's just, it's so weird. It's sort of like what, okay. So again, we'll reference the rocketeer here. It's what the rocketeer does to the villain. 
they turn him into that kind of a joke, but yeah. he himself is not a joke. Like, or he doesn't see himself that way. This movie doesn't know what to do with this character and this performance that it's given. It just, is he a joke? Is he serious? Is he dangerous? All of the above. We don't know. Like just, he, and, and no one else in the movie knows either. No one else knows either. Like, cause after that display, right? If I'm the phantom, I'm going like, this dude is a serious problem. Like we're <laughs> going to need to deal with this guy. He is out of his mind, but everybody's just like, Oh yeah. Xander Drax seems like a real interesting, interesting fella. It's like, Wait, what? <laughs> like, this dude just exploded a museum <laughs> gleefully laughing the whole time. And nobody's like a little perturbed. Nobody's like, that was a weird thing to do or say. And it's not uh, like he, he doesn't <clears throat> act unhinged in front of everyone. He does. Yes, He's, everybody is just kind of watching this guy be insane. And no one sort of thinks anything of it. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, that's a thing. That's, that's just, that's, that's, that's just Xander Drax for you. Yeah. Just his thing. Um, then we do get some fun action as the Phantom escapes, you know, Xander's clutches i guess they ride horses through central park it's well it's not central park it's definitely just like a rando park in in australia for sure but they try to make it look a little like central park i guess um and so again in a, a different movie like this would be an exciting action sequence you know watching a guy ride a horse through you know downtown new york city but since it's this weird pie plate model version of new york city it, it just kind of seems lame and a little bit you know under exciting. And, and then Patrick McGowan shows up again. He's in the taxi cab with the guy. He's dressed different now, even though he's invisible and no one <laughs> else can see him. He's now dressed in a, in an appropriate suit and, and hat because New York. I, and, and again, Billy Zane doesn't seem like weirded out by this. It seems like it's normal for him to just have these ghost interactions with his dad. That's just my ghost dad. It's just my ghost dad, right? Have you seen Have you seen that movie with Bill Cosby? It's just like that. But we can't talk about that anymore. The guy from the prison, <laughs> and the cabbie's just like, you know, you're paying me really well, so whatever, man. I'm not gonna say anything about it. But you know, in watching this, I think one of the crazy things is that pretty much every scene in this is a scene that can be directly referenced from an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, feels very intentional. Like this, this has a like, Oh, we're racing to the, the, the port so that the plane doesn't get away. Just like in temple of doom. Like it's just, there's again, if this was intentionally a spoof of those movies, then this becomes like an all time classic, right? This is like the scary movie of (laughs) action superhero movies. Like that's what this becomes, but it just, they don't know how to play it like that. They just can't. They don't know what they're doing. Um, and so all of this is headed to the devil's vortex. And I'm pretty sure that this is the same island where they shot a lot of the flyover scenes in Jurassic Park. I, I think. Um, I could be wrong. I, I'm really not sure, but it, it has that vibe at least. Like it has that sort of like same look as Isla Nublar or whatever. But really, the third act of this thing, I, I don't understand what's happening. And even watching it this time, and I backed it up a couple of times to try and figure it out, I don't really know what's going on. 
Same. Because <laughs> Drax wants the third skull. Because when you put the three skulls together, something big something, happens. Something happens. Just something. And and I'm sure the movie does have some lines where it tries to explain what that big thing is. But by God, it, they didn't stick. They just don't stick. But so they arrive at the Devil's Vortex, this place where the third skull is supposed to be found. And there's just already people there. Like a lot of people. And they're all members of this Sang Brotherhood. Who don't seem to know that James Remar is also a member of the Sang Brotherhood. <laughs> which seems to be lie that perhaps it's not much of a brotherhood because if it's just a tattoo that anybody can put on and say I'm a member of the Sang Brotherhood and then there's no like roster or it's a like, very nobody, loose recruitment nobody takes role <laughs> like, nobody's keeping track of who's involved nobody wants to give their real name <clears throat> it's very it's very strange and so um Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa is there, which I'm never going to complain about. I'm not going to be upset him. about that. He can show up anytime. He's so great. But they're trying to link together because, of course, this is the same Sang Brotherhood that like shipwrecked the original Phantom on Bengala in the first place. Like all of that stuff is is supposed to like come to a head here as, as Phantom confronts his ancient foe. And so they live on this island that apparently is also a volcano, and and but it, that's fine. They're not worried about that. And again, vague racism just kind of all over this. Uh, and and I and I don't know what they do. Like, what do these people do? What does the Sang Brotherhood do? Are they still pirates? They have boats. I mean, they live kind of on a boat that's stuck in a cave, do like the pirate? Goonies. What are they pirating now? Like, what are they doing, and why are they here? And are they just sitting on top of their treasure with their cool spider flag? I must admit, again, Drax is great. Drax is kind of like the guy who introduces himself. He says, "I am the leader of the Sang Brotherhood," and Drax is like, "I have a business proposition for you, <laughs> a boy. I've got an opportunity that you won't believe." Like, and it just. And the same brotherhood also doesn't seem to know what the skull is or does. Even though James Remar, a member of the same brotherhood has been collecting them for reasons. Just like the way they look. And they just, they look cool. Who doesn't want a cool gold skull next to your pirate throne, right? I do. Everybody does. I mean, Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa definitely does. But I love that Xander Drax just walks into this situation completely confident. And again, in a spoof of characters like this, this guy would believe that even though he's surrounded by pirates at both gunpoint and sword point, <laughs> that he still holds all the cards. Like that, that, could, that has the, seat, the makings of an incredibly funny scene where this absolute goofball who thinks he's in control just gets one upstaged immediately. This could yeah. be hilarious, like naked gun level hilarious, right? Like, like I really feel like this could be a scene out of airplane right, or something. Like, where like it's, it's going to be incredible. Knowing that it makes this movie go from just kind of boring meh to, uh, 
that would have been really good <laughs> to like this kind of wistful experience to watch through it. Yeah. I mean, cause like, okay. So like he's coming down he says, I know you're not really in the market for like a partner, right? Like that's what Drax is saying is like, let's be partners. Let's, let's do this. And, and he's like, you, you grizzled scallywags and peg leg peats. I can stand for the new order of things, modern, up to date, to carry our cause to the 20th century. And then Carrie Sagawa shuts him down and he says, You have no bargaining power with me, Mr. New York City. Right. I wanted him to say, Your soul is mine. But he <laughs> and then he says, I could kill you and feed your pretty pink ass to the sharks. <laughs> like, dude, that. That's a hilarious line. Feed your pretty pink ass to the sharks. That is hilarious. But they play it serious. They play it totally serious. And it, and it ends then, up sounding out of place. It's out of place. Like, that's a that's a joke line. Pretty pink ass? Come on. Funny. It's funny. And so then it's revealed that it's not three skulls. It's four skulls. That's the secret little bit that they need to unlock the power of the skull thingies or whatever. And of course we have a character in the film who has a lot of skulls and, and of course it is the phantom's ring is the fourth and final skull. And so after, and and I'm going to go ahead and say an incredibly long intimidation scene, like, this this scene of them having this discussion about like let's be partners blah 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 it goes on for like 15 minutes yeah it's so long he's like looking at the women and tagawa is like oh you're kind of pretty we're going to you know the phantom has good taste you're his woman huh and and I again I love Treat Williams being this businessman. He's like, ah, personal pleasure. I overlooked that. Yes, that <laughs> also comes along with the deal I'm I'm giving you. This is part of the package. Right? It's just, it, again, in the right hands, in the right circumstances, this could be an all timer scene. But it, instead, it's just kind of dull. It has like a a layer of Lex Luthor parody to it that feels really nice. Yeah, Gene, like the the pinnacle of the Gene Hackman. Yeah. You know, sort of like campy Lex Luthor stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and then it just devolves into a, a, again, a very swashbuckling and kind of fun action scene. It's, again, it's not I, the I, worst I, thing I've ever seen, but it is just kind of presented in a really boring and generic fashion. It's just very generic. And again, a bunch of guys draw swords on Phantom and he just shoots them. I, I, and <laughs> that's worth noting that this film has that. Uh, that that you know these dudes coming in with swords and he's just like pow 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 shoot all shoot you all with my guns. Um, of course he's disarming them. He's not just shooting them. He's, he's shooting the the swords out of their hands. But yeah, we get a bunch of like frankly pretty badly staged action. It's not good. It's not funny. He is doing his claw hammer punching thing on a bunch of guys, which is kind of fun. But um, so. That is this film's like greatest flaws. It's all just kind of unmemorable, right? It's just not very interesting. And the stuff and that is memorable is like weird or bad. <laughs> or just straight bad. Yeah, like there are just things in this that are bad. There's a submarine for reasons. Um, the skulls start shooting lasers through all of the things. 
James Remar gets disintegrated by them, which was all right. I, I, I sure. didn't mind saying I mean, that. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. <laughs> uh, maybe someone will be able to snort him because <laughs> he gets disintegrated. <laughs> the circle is complete. Uh, now James Rebar himself can be snorted. I'm sorry, that was really bad. He's he's struggled with addiction, and he's come out of it on the other side of yeah, a, I don't want to make a great human being. Addicts. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry, but it was a thought that passed through my head, and I <laughs> like Xander Drax. Just like cocaine okay, tends to pass through. <laughs> oh, dang. there! I um, joined you in being an awful person. We yes, we joined it together. <laughs> And then we get perhaps the stupidest possible ending for this little sequence because Drax has the three, the three skulls and he's got green laser powers. And then Phantom has the skull ring, which is, you know, like a purple power apparently. And then they get into this again in a different context. It's like the Spaceballs, oh, I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. Like, it's <laughs> it's that. It's just that. Like, there's there's the scene where he, I don't know if you, you saw the scene where he, they're, like, pushing against each other, right? Like, the, the beams are meeting and they're pushing against each other. And there's that shot of Drax as he, like, leans forward, like, moonwalk style <laughs> to push back against it. And it's just so goofy looking. It's ridiculous. And then the you know he pushes back and and you know Xander Drax explodes or something and then everything explodes for reasons because you know we have to end this turd somehow so what better way to do it than by blowing everything up and then Phantom gets away by you know being on a chain attached to the submarine that is able to escape and that's kind of it like I. It's such a, I'm not going to say like it's a wet fart of an ending, but it kind of is. It is. And then the movie itself ends on like a, when are you going to get married, son, joke, which is like, really? What? <laughs> so this whole movie, it culminates in him being like, oh, about time to have another little phantom running around. You don't want to get stabbed in the back by James Remar's son and, and not have a phantom to take his place. I, I, it's. Again, in the context of the film that we've been presented with, this scene is out of place, awkward, and strange. If this was a spoof of like this, oh, we're going to have this character that goes on forever and ever because he constantly finds a woman to bear him a son, then maybe it's a little better. But I, uh, very weird. And and that's that's it. It just ends. She flies away with Catherine Zeta-Jones. The Phantom stays behind in Bengala to Phantom and do Phantomy things, and he's and the movie's sit in over. That throne and wait. He's got to sit in that throne. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's that much happening on Bengala in this film. If I'm you being could honest. probably spend most of the year away from it. I, I feel like you, you could just, anything. you know, with modern communication technologies, even in the 1930s, it feels like you could live in New York and then kind of like come back to the island if there's a major problem. But, but you no, call that's Bengala not... your vacation home. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like six months in six months out kind of thing. You know, you, you do your, you winter in Bengala and then you head back to, to New York city for the summer months, you know, uh, maybe spend some time in New Hampshire when the city gets really, you know, really out of, out of sorts. But 
Yeah, this this movie is so weird for me. Like, it's got scenes that I think are brilliant. It's got performances that I feel are lots of fun, but there is no cohesive approach to this. I I wish we lived, you know, in in I wish we lived in the multiversal Earth where Joe Dante had actually been able to make this movie, because I feel like it would be it would be a classic. There would be a subgenre of superhero spoof films now. Yeah. That, that would poke at that much more serious sort of superhero film. I think that that would be a, a thing that could exist because of this film. And it just doesn't, you know, and I, I, I'm sorry if we belabored the point by kind of going through it, but there's so much in this film to like, that's the hardest part is like there, there's a lot going on here that I think is really fun and and really does kind of have a good time with this premise and this idea. Um, and, and that might be enough to tip somebody over into actually loving it. But for me, it's too frustrating to see what, to feel like what could have been or what might have been with this film that just didn't materialize. At least that's where I'm at with it. Um, it's kind of similar for me. Like I can't recommend this because movie's weird and you know obviously it was it was a troubled project like it didn't really find the right people it didn't find the right market it just it struggled and it uh, it's obvious that it struggled and i don't know again i'm still wondering like who who was supposed to see this movie because i don't think it was me yeah, I mean, I, I try to think back of the, the the film industry of the 1990s, which was fraught. I mean, like, the late 90s was was probably one of the last times in film that studios were just roving and searching, right? They, were, they weren't so locked into existing franchise ideas that they were searching for that next big thing. Right? They were willing to take some measure of gamble to see if they could find, you know, the thing that would hit. And, and this feels like a game, like one of those gambles, like they were going to try you know, take a swing at another superhero project. And then, you know, Dante came up with this, this very sort of spoof, fun, silly take on the superhero genre that was still developing, right? Like maybe a superhero spoof would get over the line now because they're so prevalent, right? That they would think, well, maybe somebody would want to see these movies that have become so popular being made fun of. But superhero movies weren't really in that space yet in the 1990s. Um, you know, they certainly were popular, no doubt, but they weren't like worldwide sensation popular for the most part. Batman was, sure, but that was kind of it. And so you can you really have a spoof on one success, right? That kind of thing. And so it feels like the studio or somebody got cold feet and wasn't willing to put up the money for that version. They wanted that more serious. No, we're actually going to try and turn this into a, you know, a Batman style franchise. And then that just didn't work. You know, either they didn't go back and rewrite the script enough to sort of make it that darker, more serious tone, um, which they must have, because this is still credited solely to Jeffrey Bohm. He's the, he's the only screenwriter on this. And if it's the screenplay that he developed with Dante, then Dante developed that screenplay to be a comedy. It would explain so much. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the same thing. Um, and I know we've talked about it before. 
it's the same explanation that Joss Whedon gives for Alien Resurrection. That I wrote the script and I submitted it. And then the person who interpreted it, it was like they had no idea what they were reading. It was, it was like, it was all of my words, but when they were interpreted by the person who put it on screen, they did not understand what I was saying, you know? And that's, it feels like that's what this is too. Cause you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a great editor. I do have a lot of experience with nonlinear film editing, but it's almost one of those things where I kind of want to re-edit this musically and timing wise to turn this into a comedy as opposed to a straight superhero action film. And I wonder if even taking some of the scenes and reworking it that way would change it. Cause again, that last some of the music, <laughs> yeah, music choices for sure. Like this needs, this almost needs like Benny Hill soundtrack stuff behind it. Like, like it just, it's goofy. It's silly. Like, and, and again, I think there are moments when Billy Zane really gets that memo, but I think a lot of the seriousness is unfortunately hung on him. I think he was the one that was expected to carry the burden of being like straight, like playing the straight man in this. When in the reality, the Phantom is supposed to be much jokier and much more fun. Because again, his physicality is so over the top. It's so goofy. Um, just the way that he moves through the world as the Phantom. It's it's just this this different it's, approach. It's very like Adam West. And yeah, it has that. It has that feeling to it. But it doesn't have the personality. Right. It, nothing else supports it. Yeah. You know. Um, again, unfortunately of these, these early nineties, it's been a long time since I watched the shadow, but I feel like the shadow might hold together a bit better than this just because the shadow, I feel like kind of knew what it was from the start. What it was, was not very good, but at least it's not, (laughs) it's not trying to be two different movies at the same time, you know, like at least it's not that. So maybe that'll be one to revisit at some point too. But ultimately of all of these like early nineties experiments with thirties pulp action heroes, just watch the Rocketeer. Rocketeer's glorious. It really still, is. It holds up super well. Like It's funny and it, yet it also has like the dramatic moments and it also has a great villain. Totally. Yeah. Played by one of the greatest, most villainous faces ever in Hollywood. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, I just, you know, I, I probably say this a lot when we, when we talk, but if your movie makes me want to watch another movie, that's not a good sign. It's not a good <laughs> sign. It's, it's, it's not what you want out of your filmic experience to have yeah. somebody be like, oh man, I could just be watching the Rocketeer right now. Yeah, that would be so much better. <laughs> you just watch the Rocketeer. Definitely. And and yeah, that's that's never the place you want to be. But but yeah, his his Neville Sinclair in that movie is just pitch perfect, right? He's that right level of smarm. Whereas you know, Treat Williams in this is going to this other very deeply comedic place. Yeah, you know, he actually is legitimately both you know charming, funny at times, but also sort of devastatingly scary. And, uh, you know, when they're in front of the Griffith Observatory and he just straight up starts talking in German, it's like, oh, damn, it's on, you know, like that, like, geez. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's really, that's really fun. Um, one of the films from his filmography that I think 
because he did. It did not come out for a long time. This movie was basically like forgotten. Um, but he was actually in the Brenda Starr movie. And I don't know if you remember watching this. I remember watching it as a kid at least once. But Brenda Starr was another comic strip character. Um, you know, like the, the gadabout, you know, girl reporter. Um, but it was one of those things where the guy's drawing her and then she comes to life like weird science style. And then she's this person, you know, out of time because she's like the ace reporter for a New York magazine. And then she's brought to our world kind of thing. So, I mean, like Timothy Dalton was in that and he kind of got the memo for that movie too. But like people had been trying to figure out how to get some of these pulp characters into modern film. And, and this felt like, maybe an attempt that could have worked really well where a lot of them did not just, just like that. But, but yeah, um, I'd say at this point, you know, fire up Disney plus watch the rocketeer in, you know, revel in the 1930s, you know, nostalgia of it all. And, and, uh, you know, let Joe Johnston take you away because Johnston's a fantastic filmmaker. Um, it's why you got captain America first Avenger. Rocketeers, why that Which movie exists. So, Captain America: First Avenger is my favorite Marvel movie. It's 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 high up there for me too. Unless I, I'm I, allowed to include Ghost Rider. If I'm allowed to include Ghost Rider, it would be that. <laughs> Dude, I I I include Ghost Rider because I fucking love that man. movie so much. <laughs> um, I I will say this right: the Marvel movies for me, I you know I am the prime audience. These all these superhero movies, like I am the audience like i am the person that is going to go see all this garbage regardless but in captain america first avenger when tommy lee jones is complaining to Haley atwell about how terrible steve rogers is and how desperately he does not want him to be the chosen pick and he throws the dummy grenade and steve jumps on it where everybody else runs it gets me Clyde. every time. <laughs> every time. Niagara Falls, Frankie. Every time. It's like, God, that's such a great moment. Um, you know, so like again, we're we're getting off topic now. Yeah, we're getting off. We all we brought up Joe Johnson movies. Ah shit. Oh, Joe Johnson. Mighty Joe Young. No, I'm just kidding. Uh anyway. Uh yes, like I I feel like there is so much here that could have been amazing. And could have been really fun, but it, it just, this is one of those muddled messes of a film that started in one place, got developed into another place, got performed in a different place. And, and then, you know, God bless Simon Windsor. He tried to assemble it into something workable, but it just didn't land. Um, I don't think it's a blemish on anybody's careers. I think everybody in this is trying, um, but it certainly is not a cohesive project. Uh, not in any real usable way, at least. But uh, yeah, so it's a, unfortunately a not recommend for me. I don't think The Phantom is worth revisiting. Um, maybe if you just kind of want to see somebody trying, like, you know, to see Billy Zane trying to be that sort of over-the-top theatrical hero figure from the 30s and 40s, if you just kind of want to see that, maybe. Um but yeah, I, I just don't think that there's enough here to warrant it when there are so many other choices 
in 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 films of this type to go find. Yeah, like right? this this was not the only movie of its type. Um, there aren't a lot, but there are certainly better ones. Yeah, and and that's really the issue. It's it's no particular fault of this film. It's just been so thoroughly surpassed by what's come after that I I just don't think it's worth it, you know. Or even what came before. I mean, Rocketeer was 1990, 6 years before this. Uh and and it's a, a vastly superior film on pretty much every level. I will say that this movie doesn't have a heavy reliance on special effects, which is kind of refreshing. Like there's a little bit, but a lot of it in this is just sort of like physical action, which I did appreciate. Um, you know, that, that was kind of nice. Uh, but that was also much more common in the nineties to begin with, you know, just limitations of the technology at the time. But, uh, but yeah, so I guess we'll, we'll wrap up and not recommend for me. How about you? Uh, same. Yeah, I don't think there's any reason to watch this because the only the only thing that someone might enjoy is is the what could have been and that's torturing yourself. There is no there is no Joe Dante Phantom movie no matter how <laughs> nice that sounds. No matter how desperate you might want it to be, it doesn't exist. Uh yeah, unfortunate but but true. So this little Australian production from the mid-90s uh will probably find itself relegated to the busted down hall of justice that gets destroyed like they're they're just nobody's gonna go looking for this thing it's just gonna be left to the annals of time um and i i haven't looked to see if it had a 4k release i'm guessing not i can't imagine anybody was scrambling for this in 4k i can't imagine that it would look very good in 4k uh because again this movie just looks cheap looks tv cheap um and and not in a way that uh you know you can find you can look back on and be like, oh, that's kind of fun, you know. Like it just looks cheap and not in a good way. Um, so yeah, I guess that that wraps it up for the Phantom. <laughs> it it will remain a Phantom. Nobody's gonna go find it or see it. Yeah, uh, it man. is it is the ghost who walks of film, <laughs> right? It's out there, but nobody can see it and nobody really cares. So uh, unfortunate, but true. Fortunately, you know, Billy Zane, Treat Williams, Christy Swanson, uh, Catherine Zeta Jones, you know, all of them got to have careers after this didn't didn't ruin anybody and i think that's that's probably good too so. uh okay well i guess if somebody wants to find you online and tell you just how much the phantom has shaped their childhoods and how desperate they are uh to to love this film and and that you know you need to love it too where can they find you and share those opinions uh you can you can send me any of your your phantom gifts or fan cams um at baskinator on Twitter. I'm still on Twitter. I'm still calling it Twitter. I'm also on Blue Sky. It's the same it's the same name. I'm on I'm on all the things. It's the same name. Nice. Baskinator. That's me. Very cool. Uh I am still T Baskin on X Twitter as well or Twitter X or Zitter Twitter that also is known as X. Zitter, I do like that one. because uh, that feels like what I that's what it feels like to go there and use the site now. Like there's just a zit. Under, like right underneath your eye, right? Like yeah. right there where it really hurts. Um, I am also on Blue Sky, uh, T Baskin on there as well. Uh, though not as much. I'm still trying to like figure out how to find people on that platform and, and well, not how to, but like, you know, who's on there and how can I kind of curate the same, you know, sort of folks. But, uh, but a cool site. I'm enjoying it so far. So yeah, you can get me T Baskin there. You can get us together at FP's Theater on Twitter and uh, failurepiece at gmail.com if you have thoughts uh so well thanks for listening in as we talked about the phantom a a film that i enjoyed as a youngster and and still can find some enjoyment in today but 
boy, it just has not aged in a way that makes it easy to look back and say, hey, you know, people got this movie wrong. They didn't understand how great it was. I, mm, no, <laughs> not in this no. case. Not this time. Uh, but uh, thanks for listening. We uh, had a good time talking about it. Hope you had a good time listening. And we will be back in the future to talk about those cinematic near misses that maybe are still worth your time. Thanks. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>